This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Good day. Welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel. And today I'm pleased and honored to have with us Professor Jeremy Black. Professor Black is Professor of History at Exeter University. He is without a doubt the most prolific historian writing in the English language today, having written well over 100 books uh, actually, Professor Black, do, exactly how many books have you written? Do you know? I don't know. I have no <laughs> idea. There was there was a party when I reached a hundred, and there was a previous party when it reached my age. I suspect it's about a hundred and forty-five, but I don't count. And I, Understood. Today, much, can I can I do, no no? Let me just say something. Let me yes. just say something very briefly. By a lot what? of people comment on the number of books. Um, I don't think it makes you a better or a worse author to write a lot or a little. Um, I hope that you know when I die, if the obituarists think I'm worthy of comment, they will comment on the range of the scholarship, the the sophistication of the intellectual analysis, and the willingness repeatedly to look at a broad approach to history. That, I think, is much more important than how many or how few books one writes. Point well taken. Today, we are speaking about uh, Professor Black's book, A Brief History of Spain. Welcome, Professor Black. And uh, to jump right in, how does uh, geography impact the history of Spain, the history of the Iberian Peninsula? Oh, well, geography is extraordinarily important. I mean, Spain, we think of as a unit, but of course, uh, for much of its history, there were a number of kingdoms, and it faced in very different directions. If you go, for example, to the northwest, to Galicia, it's a totally different environment to the southeast, to near Valencia. And you will find that there are different Spains. And of course, one can think about this even more strongly, because prior to Um, the development of rapid transit systems. Uh, In a sense, Barcelona was closer to Marseille or to Genoa uh, than it was to, shall we we say, Badajoz or or Seville. And I think this is important. We tend to assume the units that are there. Uh, But in the case of Iberia, it was not inevitable that there would be two countries, Spain and Portugal, nor was it inevitable that if there was going to be a Spain, it should be a Spain with the uh, geography that it has, the political geography it has at the present moment. What is the earliest evidence of human settlement in the Iberian Peninsula? 
oh, you go right back. I mean, the same as with France, you've got these uh, rather wonderful uh, cave paintings which show, you know, a, 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 a understanding of uh, of quite sophisticated uh, ability to produce what what we would call art. I mean, clearly, if you go back further, you can see hominids and uh, Neanderthals um, uh, with traces in similar cave systems, for example, in Gibraltar. But um, Spain, is, uh, as an environment, had more to offer in a way than, than areas further north. I mean, as the um, ice sheets, and obviously there wasn't just one ice age, there were a series of ice ages or ice sheet advances. As the ice sheets retreated um, and the warmth came up from the south, so did the uh, animals which human beings pursued uh, in hunting societies. There was a land bridge between what is now um, Spain and Morocco. Um, the Mediterranean was a it was a lake, um, and transit from North Africa to Iberia was was, was easy. And of course, that meant animals moved north. It also means deciduous trees moved north. And it means that um, the waters, particularly off Mediterranean Spain, um, also um, warm up, which, which means that you've got uh, sea life that you can exploit. So Spain, in some respects, you're going to be seeing more early life there than if you were looking at, say, Denmark. What is the contemporary Spanish view of the Roman conquest and subsequent rule of the Iberian Peninsula? Well, as you know, I, I try and discuss that in 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 my book. Um, I mean, what's interesting about Spanish views of their own past is where people have chosen uh, to focus on. So, the idea of Spain as a imperial power, which was a very attractive idea um, from the late 15th century onwards was one that was deliberately designed to resonate with Rome. Um, and indeed, there was also, because of Christianization in late Roman uh, Hispania, there was also a resonance with the Christian, um, the very explicit nature of Christianity in the ideology of the Spanish state. Uh, on the other hand, um, there were uh, always uh, some who focused on uh, pre-Spanish Celts, um, and also separately, but sometimes at the same time, some people who found that the Visigoths, who, as it were, overran um, much of Spain, um, were in a sense um, exemplary. And, and you know, it's, it's rather interesting. I and mean, if you go to the, the flag of the province of the uh, city of Zamora, um, there is the, a, a statue of Viriathus, who was the leader of the Lusitani, one of the tribes that fought against uh, Roman expansion. And there was a, a television series between 210 and 212 in his honour. I think it's fair to say you would not have anticipated that during, if you'd been visiting Spain during Franco's period. So a lot of it does depend upon the, the politics of the, of the society that comes, uh, because comes later. I mean, Franco himself, um, 
was real, relatively keen on the Visigoths because they established unity in the peninsula and also because they converted to Catholicism. Uh, and indeed, a, a museum devoted to them was established during his dictatorship. But after his death, they fell somewhat out of favor. So, you know, you've got different different histories of Spain in the past, which reflects the extent to which, like modern-day Britain or France or Germany or the United States, it is a divided society with what you might call history wars or culture wars, and the past resonates very much. Um, but as a last point there, the past that probably resonates the most in terms of divisiveness, and I'm sure we'll come to that, is the past of the last century, particularly the, um, the Civil War and the Franco era, but also prior to that. And I think it's fair to say that the amount of popular uh, interest in whether Spain should look back to Hispania um, is much less uh, pronounced um, than that which focuses on Franco. What explains the rapid fall of Visigoth Spain to the Muslims in the, um, uh, I think it's early uh, 8th century? It is the early 8th century. Uh, the uh, Muslims crossed the Straits of uh, Straits, sorry, Straits of Gibraltar in 711. Well, it depended upon whom you wrote at the time, read at the time. I mean, for example, um, uh, Christian writers at the time, like Beatus, was, were arguing that this was, you know, a providential punishment for the the, the wicked last king of Visigothic uh, Spain, Roderick, um, and uh, you know that morality played a role. And in a sense, in taking that view, he was echoing the standard approach in the Book of Kings towards. Uh, the kings of Israel um, and the moralist accounts that were taken. I think uh, there are other factors. I meant to um, the uh, first of all, there's the actual dynamism of expanding Islam, and in particular, its syncretic habits, its ability to draw on the Berbers of Northwest Africa and to use them. Uh, secondly, I think it's fair to say that the Visigoths at that stage uh, had divisions. They had other military commitments, including uh, they'd been fighting the Basques. So there are a number of factors. Um, and it's also worth bearing in mind that, uh, you know, without trying to find something specifically at fault in Visigothic Spain, it's worth bearing in mind that the that the Islamic forces had also conquered, you know, Byzantine Egypt or Sasanid uh, Persia. So it's not specifically something to Spain alone that, that explains this expansion. Do you agree with those uh, revisionist Spanish historians who uh, argue that the so-called convivencia, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing it correctly, uh, was in, for the most part, a myth? and has more to say about contemporary ideas of multiculturalism than the actualities of Spain in that period of time. Yes, I think that's correct. I mean, what you're referring to, as you know, is the multi-ethnic, multi-religious, yet supposedly tolerant culture of Al-Andalus, and in particular in the uh, late 10th century. I think one has to be careful here. I mean, uh, the uh, Kingdom of Al-Andalus uh, also spent its time uh, brutalizing and raiding the Christians in northern, northwestern Spain. Not that they were doing, were not doing the same back. Um, and I don't think it's, uh, it, you know, I, I think one has to be very careful. It tells you more 
about a modern belief or wish belief that it is possible to have an essentially benign, tolerant Islam in which an enormous amount of political and intellectual capital has been endowed. As you say, there are revisionist Spanish historians who are skeptical about this. And I think that's reasonable. I think the uh, the actual um, practice of uh, Islamic Spain, as indeed of Christian Spain, I have to add, um, was one in which uh, violence and notions of masculinity uh, centered on violence were very, very important. The fact that they didn't spend all their time fighting the infidel and at times fought each other, the same also true of the Christians, of course, does not mean that um, the notion of religious warfare didn't play an important part in moulding these societies. And it's also worth bearing in mind before somebody goes around and idealising Al-Andalus, or for that matter, the Islamic society in Sicily, that these were slave societies and the conditions of slavery were not particularly attractive and um, the slavery was supported by slaving, slave raiding. Um, so, you know, that doesn't tend to be talked about very much. Um, and that's very interesting, isn't it? Because, um, you know, you have this astonishing idea that slavery was in some way a Western innovation. I, I recently heard, and I just, you know, I was at a lecture at the British Library, and I heard an American uh, so-called scholar claiming that the British had invented slavery. Well, you know, that might play well with a political sort of self-loathing of part of the audience. But in practicality, of course, slavery has a very, very old history. And, you know, if you're looking at the world of Islam in the medieval period, slavery was extraordinarily important to it. Uh, unfortunately, uh, the morass, intellectual morass of political correctness uh, uh, knows no bounds, unfortunately, in terms of uh, uh, inexactitude and mendacity. Um, why did, uh, getting back to the book, why did um, the Kingdom of Granada, the um, uh, last uh, Muslim kingdom in the south of Spain, last so long? That's a fascinating question. I think, um, first of all, I think Christian Spain, as indeed uh, um, you know Europe as a whole, was much weakened in its energy levels by the Black Death and by the uh, outbreaks of plague that followed that. Uh, secondly, Castile, under its ruling dynasty from 1369 to 1516, had enormous instability, conflict within the royal family, as well as within the nobility and overlap of the two, conflict with Portugal. I think those were important. And also, the Kingdom of Granada was no real threat. I mean, you know, the um, once uh, Andalusia had been conquered, once uh, in particular Seville had gone, once the uh, counterattack by the Marinade Sultanate of Morocco had been defeated, and it was decisively defeated in 1340 at the Battle of Salado, then thereafter, I think it's fair to say, that Granada was very much a sort of, uh, you know, a, a sub-story. Um, and, um, and I think the, what's interesting is that the dynastic union of the ruling houses of Aragon and Castile in the persons of um, Ferdinand and Isabella, and I think that's 1479, is the prelude 
to attack in Granada and they start off, I think it's uh, Ronda Falls in 1485 and Granada itself in 1492. Um, and, and, you know, in other words, Spanish unification, once it comes, readily is followed by the fall of Granada because it was no real threat. And of course, as you know, um, Spain and indeed Portugal were which had captured Ceuta in 1415, but Spain as well then immediately expands into North Africa. There is no sense whatsoever that um, the, the, the sea is, a, is a, a barrier. I think this is very important. You know, modern notions of what should be the barrier for a state society or people don't mean very much for most of history. And uh, to the Spanish rulers taking over Granada, where the bulk of the population uh, remained, I mean, those of them who were Moors and then Moriscos were eventually expelled, but the bulk of them remained as a kind of subject servile labor force, uh, offered an, an obvious pattern for then moving on into North Africa. Um, and it's instructive as to what would have happened, where the boundaries would have lasted had there not been a revival of the Portuguese, sorry, the Moroccan monarchies, uh, Sultanate in the uh, 1560s and 70s, and also the expansion of the Ottoman Turks into modern-day Algeria from the late 1520s, both of which stop it. So, as you know, Spain has two enclaves in North Africa, Ceuta, which it got as a result. It was, it was the prize, if you like, um, once it lost Portugal. But uh, Melilla, um, those are still Spanish to this day, uh, but they represent shadows of what had been a much greater aspiration to be a North African power. You explain Spain's 16th century conquest in the America as being akin to uh, similar conquests uh, around the world, in particular the Mughals in the Indian subcontinent and the Ottomans in the Levant and in Egypt, as well as further west uh, in the beginning of the 16th century. Uh, can you uh, expand on that a bit in terms of this comparisons? Yes, I think, I mean, first of all, I'm not unique in explaining that. Uh, as a very distinguished um, American scholar wrote, a, William H. McNeil wrote a great book on gunpowder empires in which he looked at comparisons, um, and that was some decades ago. But what I was arguing in particular, I, I, I don't believe we should explain this in terms of military technology, though I have discussed that in other books. But I think an, an important point was the ability of these societies and, you know, who, you know, there's only a relatively modest number of, of Spaniards or Portuguese who went to the New World, only a relatively modest number of Mughals, etc. It's the ability to uh, win over local elites. So um, the uh, the Spaniards, of course, in the New World actually win over quite a few of the local aristocracy. They kill others, but they will win over quite a few. And as long as they're willing to convert to to Christianity, and obviously the Christianity often absorbs existing cults by sanctifying the local um, local deities, that's 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 relatively easy. And the same thing happens with the Mughals who recruit, for example, the Rajputs, or with the Ottomans who use in you mentioned Egypt, they use Mamluk troops and administrators. So the kind of modern notion in which you have an engaged and mobilized mass public 
um, is really, for most countries, I think you could fairly say it's true of the 20th century. For some countries with mass literacy and nationalist movements, it's true from the 19th century. I mean, the interesting thing about um, the United States and Britain is that you can see um, such a popular nationalism earlier, um, as indeed you can in the Swiss cantons, for example, or Venice. Uh, but these are unusual societies, uh, no accidents. Those are the societies which are the basis of um, liberty, freedom, and the rule of law. Um, societies which are much more imperial structures reliant on local uh, cooperation have generally a much more nuanced form in which it's a, a rulership, in which it's very necessary for the, as it were, the government to give the elite the instructions that the elite wishes to follow and the elite to ensure that the government knows what instructions it wants. And, you know, rather sort of foolish people sometimes refer to that as absolutism or, you know, autocracy or whatever. It's actually much more complex than that. Um, and it is reliant on consent, but the consent is scarcely equal. Um, and much of the, you know, much of the population is not in any way con uh, Con, you know, consulted in it. You seem to disagree with the historical literature which posits that in the century after 1590s there was a so-called decline of Spain. Why so? Well, first of all, not all historians take that view. I mean, I think it's fair to say that people who have written about the difficulties of Spain have nevertheless seen um, a, a degree of resilience in the late 17th century. I'm thinking of Henry Cain and even more significantly Christopher Storrs, who's written a rather good book on you know, Spain under Charles II and then gone on to do good work on Spain under Philip V. I mean, what I would say is that it all is far too pat and convenient, you know, the sort of the decline of Spain the ascendancy of France, it reflected in part, and I've tried to argue this in an earlier book I did on Europe, Europe from 1550 to 1800, it reflected in fact um, putting together of what was known as the black legend of anti-Catholicism, a view that in some way Spain was clearly and obviously anachronistic and failed, which is a rather odd way to describe the society which in the 1690s was one of the largest empires in the world. Um, and you know, the, a, a, a misunderstanding of the nature of historical sources. I mean, there were, as you know, Spanish writers called the Arbistras who wrote about the serious problems of Spain in the early 17th century, and they were serious problems. But so also were there serious problems in Russia of the time of troubles, or in France of the 16th, and then again of the Fronde, or in England and Scotland in the of the internecine political quarrels of the 17th century. So I think there's an element of uh, failure to put it in, into contextual terms. And, you know, I, I remember giving lectures on this years ago to undergraduates and saying to them, you, you know, if you look at the standard image, historian after historian has cited to describe Spain as in chaos. They described Don Quixote uh, and tilting at the windmills and the idea of here is a republic of the bewitched or a, a state of delusion and all of these terms have been uh, run out. And I used to say to the students, you know, which character and which novel by, say, Iris Murdoch would you like to be used to sum up 
your experience, those of your parents and those of the next generation. I don't think people have always been sufficiently careful in their use of sources in discussing the travails of 17th century um, uh, Spain. And if I might just comment on a great historian who I much admire, J.H. Eliot, he wrote an enormous book on the revolt of the Catalans, very influential. I remember reading it when I was undergraduate. And, you know, if you chuck it out the first floor of my house, uh, you could kill somebody on the ground floor, um, on the ground, you know, outside the house. But the fact that it's a big book, but nobody, not him, not any of the other uh, British scholars or American scholars writing on the period or French scholars writing on the period, wrote a comparable book called The Reconquest of Catalonia. Yes, Catalonia rebelled in 1640. It was a big problem. But it's worth bearing in mind that it had been recaptured uh, by 1652-53. And, you know, people didn't want to listen to that narrative. The same if you look at, um, you know, sort of British raiding on the um, Spanish Caribbean or what you would call the Caribbean in the late 16th century. We all played up Sir Francis Drake and people talked about for uh, the English and then subsequently for the Dutch, if you're looking into, I think it's 1629, raids on the Spanish treasure fleets. Yes, these were impressive. But the fact of the matter is the vast bulk of Spain's uh, Caribbean empire uh, remained. Most of the silver got through. And when the English did launch major attacks, um, they were often unsuccessful. I mean, they gained Jamaica, having failed to gain Hispaniola. Jamaica was largely uninhabited at that time. Going into the 18th century, they failed at Carthagena in uh, 1741. And there was much more resilience in the Spanish Empire than we tend to accept. And again, I mean, it's worth looking at the situation in the mid-18th uh, century, background to the American Revolution. Um, yes, Spain did badly in 1762, the British capturing both Havana and Manila that year, but uh, the French hadn't exactly done marvellously in the Seven Years' War. They'd lost Quebec, Montreal, uh, Guadeloupe, Martinique, etc. Um, and of course, if you look at the um, Spanish America, sorry, if you look at the um, Spanish part of the War of American Independence, the Spaniards did jolly well. They captured from the British Mobile, Pensacola. You know, their intervention was quite important. It's just we don't tend to talk about it. Um, so I think what we do is we have this very convenient account which plays strongly to what we know is to happen. We know that what is to happen is that Spain doesn't. Uh, remain at the forefront politically and that it declines in relative terms economically. We know that. Um, so we make that appear um, inevitable or very, very, very likely without looking at multiple contingencies and without trying to relativize that. And as you will know, Charles, I've had the pleasure of talking to you on a number of occasions. I think this is more generally true of the way in which um, we look at history. I think it's part of the Whiggish or progressivist or whatever term you want to use, uh, a narrative that is so strong as a analytical method um, in, in historical work. And, you know, I, I find it unconvincing, or let's put it like this, at times it may well be accurate, but that doesn't mean it's ipso facto accurate. And I think it's generally more complex, and 17th century Spain is definitely more complex. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, 
to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yes, and um, I agree with you that Sir John Elliott is a great historian. I've done a podcast with him, but you are correct. The um, subtitle to his book is, um, an, is uh, an episode in the decline of Spain. So there you have the sort of Whiggish teleological view well, of Spanish history. I mean, that crisis, that crisis, Spain faces, as you will know, mid-17th century crisis. It faces rebellion in, uh, in Catalonia, rebellion in Portugal, rebellion in Naples, rebellion in Sicily, um, long-term difficulties in the war with France, and actually conspiracies in Andalusia. All of those are overcome apart from the rebellion in Portugal. And the rebellion in Portugal um, lasts essentially because the Spaniards focus on Catalonia and then because in the 1660s, both the English and the French intervene on the Portuguese side. So Spain is up against a lot. But what is interesting is that the Spanish monarchy remains um, the possessor of much of Western Europe until the dynasty ends in the male line, which is what happens in 1700. And that's why the Spanish succession is such an enormous prize. The war that in the United States you call Queen Anne's War, we call the War of the Spanish Succession, reflects the importance of of Spain's legacy, that there is so much there to play for. I agree entirely. And of course, uh, when uh, you were an undergraduate, of course, all this... um, uh, difficulties were uh, put under the heading the crisis of the 17th century or mid 17th century yes it was it was indeed and there was a sort of very developmental account of things and i you know as i said i you know i've written a book on europe 1550 to 1800 and i've tried to suggest i mean i will have different views that's fine a different narrative and account of that but the, the main point I would try and underline for listeners is to take everything, including what I say, as part of an interactive debate in which informed scholars are coming up with differing views and therefore avoid anybody who says that theirs is a definitive account because there is no such thing. And particularly when one's trying to address a society of the complexity of Spain, because to loop back to what we were talking at the beginning, Spain in part was an amalgam of different uh, economies, different political cultures, and therefore you've got to be very wary of assuming you're looking at a unitary uh, condition for whatever you mean by Spain, and obviously you probably need, to, if you're meaning Spain, to include Spain's at least European empire, uh, if not its um, transoceanic empire. This is, means very different things within itself at any one time. Well, uh, going to the early 19th century, why were the French, militarily speaking, unsuccessful in the Napoleonic period, but quite successful in 1823? Um, in the so-called Army of Saint-Louis? That's, again, an excellent question. I mean, what I would say is it's it's an issue of the impact of the situation domestically. When the French intervened in 1823, they were intervening on the side of the king and Ferdinand and with much of the public behind the king and against the liberals. Uh, And also, it was a very short-run intervention. There was no army of occupation left. 
The problem with Napoleon's earlier intervention uh, is whether or not um, you know, it, it um, could have been done differently politically in the short term. He made the terrible mistake of trying to leave it as a long-term intervention. So instead of marching his troops in, uh, imposing or at least molding a new political situation and then clearing out, which would have been much more sensible, um, he leaves a, uh, as it were, an occupation because it has to sustain his brother who has no traction in Spanish politics or Spanish culture. He leaves his brother there. And then on top of that, um, you know, there is an anti-clerical uh, situation. I'm, I remember when I was last in Seville, going round monasteries that had been, of which the church remained, but monasteries, you know, if you read it, all the stuff that they left up there, they'd been despoiled by French troops or the French had, you know, shoveled their horses in there and this sort of thing. And it's not surprising locals didn't like that. I mean, Spain was, in many senses, a profoundly Catholic country, something the liberals didn't really understand in 1823. And, um, and indeed, I think it's fair to say that, um, you know, we've been talking about revisionism, a direction of revisionism, obviously very uncomfortable to many people who have views on the present politics. But, you know, you shouldn't allow your views on the present politics to determine one's uh, assessment of the past. Uh, what seems to be the case is that older views about much of Europe being progressive and wa waiting uh, after Napoleon to sort of, as it were, greet Risorgimento and secularism and middle class liberal government. That doesn't actually appear so much to be the case. I mean, I was reading a rather good book by Laban, I think his name was, on Lombardy under the Austrians, which was uh, uh, Lombardy and the Veneto, which was making the point about the general popularity of the Austrians and the extent to which French rule had been compromised by all these Italians being dragged off to fight the Russians in 1812. Um, and I think you could say the same thing about Italy uh, sorry, the same thing about Spain. Uh, Napoleon's the, the, the domestic policy of the Napoleonic system in Spain was cack-handed at best, exploitative as a whole, and really played no attention to um, to Spanish sensibilities. And you know, Charles Esdale's excellent work, and there are um, Spanish scholars, but it's possibly most accessible to your audiences by listening to Charles Esdale, sorry, reading Charles Esdale. Charles Esdale's excellent work has drawn attention repeatedly to the strength of the Spanish regular forces, army forces, in fighting the French. Um, and you know, that, that is intended to make it clear that although the British played a very major role, um, they were not the Sole, sole reason for the defeat of um, for the defeat of uh, Napoleon, and I think again, uh, you know, diachronic history looking from one period to another is always tricky. But just as an idea, um, you know, you can make the same analogy when when thinking, for example, of the Carlist Wars of the mid 19th century or the Spanish Civil War of 1936 to 39, in that it's too. It, attractive, particularly for outside commentators, to focus on the role of external intervention. Um, and it tends to be underplayed that these wars were essentially determined uh, by those who were, you know, who are natives. You appear not to adhere to what uh, I characterize, maybe other people characterize as well, the Raymond Carr School of Spanish History, which sees Spain in the post-1815 uh, period up to the 
uh, early, early 20th century as being on the margins of European history, as an outlier, as a sort of uh, semi-failed state? Well, um, you know, Spain has difficulties. We know that. We know it is difficult to establish practices of seeing uh, the alternation of political power as being something that can be achieved peacefully. We know there is the practice of generals staging um, the translation is pronouncements, but basically military demonstrations to demand um, the political power. We know that the economy didn't proceed at a fantastic rate. But, you know, I've written this in between writing a book on Italy and the next one in the sequence is on Portugal. And I think if you're looking at that context, you're not assuming that Spain should behave like Denmark or the Netherlands. Um, and I think there is a problem in assuming a greater degree of failure in the system. I think that is a problem. There were difficulties. It didn't match the uh, the leading economic uh, players in Europe, um, and it was affected by tensions and difficulties in the global economy, particularly in the late 19th century, um, the result of agricultural imports into Europe. Um, but no, I, I would be cautious about uh, arguing that there is some ineluctable reason why uh, the monarchy should fail, or subsequently, indeed, there is an ineluctable reason why the republic should fail. Um, I'm not convinced about that. And, you know, um, the, the Spanish state, I mean, it, in many senses, undesirably so, is sometimes capable of major efforts. I mean, they suppressed the first major rising in Cuba um, in the uh, early 1860s. Spain is acting as an, it's sort of a dynamic and expansionist imperial power. Not sure we would necessarily regard those as marvelous things today and whether they were in the long-term interests of Spain, which lost most of its empire in 1898. I'm not sure, but it certainly isn't the sign of a completely derelict society. Uh, you anticipated, sort of anticipated the question I had, which was, why did the Second Spanish Republic in the 1930s fail? Well, I, I, that's again an excellent question. I mean, I've tried to write about that quite carefully, and obviously the trouble is the subject is shot through with ideological suppositions. I think one of the problems is that neither um, the right nor the left uh, really understood the notion that um, a, a, a republic does mean you don't always get your own way and that elections uh, do mean that. I think that that uh, was a major problem. But it's also worth bearing in mind, here again, we need to put it in its context. If you're looking at uh, Europe in the 1930s, uh, democracy fails in most states. Um, and I mean, 1920s and 30s, even more so. And if you're thinking about other Catholic states, one would obviously be thinking of Italy, Poland, and Portugal. Uh, obviously, France is different. Um, so that, again, rather than treating Spain, you cited Raymond Carr, rather than treating Spain as some appalling outlier, I mean, it, I'm not sure I would be happy with with that view. I mean, the the it was tragic what happened in Spain, absolutely tragic. 
Um, and I think the political and military leadership of the country served it very, very, very poorly. And here I think one should be talking both of the uh, nationalists, the far right, and also I'm afraid to say I don't think the um, the the um, the communists or indeed many of the um, you know many of the left as a whole was uh, was sensible. I mean, for example, you know, anti-clerical legislation, anti-clerical practice was not a good idea in a society that was divided in that fashion. So. You know, I'm not. I think the Second Republic uh, found it very difficult to entrench uh, democracy. I mean, it did all sorts of things. It granted the right to vote to women. It, um, it, uh, you know, supported Catalan self-government. All of which I think today we would regard. I hope we would regard as benign developments. But I think it's uh, it's uh, political response to growing polarization which was you know, um, a, a reluctance to reach out to those of differing views. I think that was a major problem in a context that was being radicalized by falling living standards and by the extent to which both left and right were demonizing each other. Why did General Franco win the Civil War? Oh, um, better operational practice, better logistics, a more united side as opposed to his opponents. All of those were important. Um, I mean, he didn't, I mean, he and his colleagues, he wasn't the only one uh, who rose in 1936, got it badly wrong, of course. In 1936, they did not uh, take over as they had anticipated doing. Um, and, you know, you end up with this civil war. Um, but, um, you know, in the context of both sides, poorly trained, um, inadequately supplied, only limited experience, um, and also, of course, terrible transport infrastructure for both sides. I think in that context, um, the Francoists put uh, were more successful in organizing themselves to produce a cohesive military activity in which they used incrementalism very successfully, conquering one area after another. Um, you know, their, their original plan, which was for a rapid victory, went badly wrong. But once the war became intractable, as it appeared, their kind of deliberative and incrementalist uh, fashion um, did work out in the end. I mean, it took quite a time, but it did work out. I mean, the Republicans didn't govern very well. They couldn't feed their population, raise their revenue, control their inflation, run their military logistics. All of those were important. You agree with scholars like uh, Stanley Payne, who argue that uh, notwithstanding all its flaws, Ophond, uh, the Franco regime, was a modernizing one? Um, well, Stanley Payne's a great scholar. Um, can I just say, I think the Francoish regime by the mid to late 60s is totally different to the Francoish regime in the 1940s. In the 1940s, I would put the emphasis much more on repression, and a you know almost suffocating reactionary characteristics, and I wouldn't see much form of modernisation then. 
But I think you get the development of more technocratic policies. And um, there is in the 60s and early 70s, I think what you could see liberalization, economic growth, uh, social change, things like uh, the liberalization of censorship by the press law of, I think it's 1966. Um, I think economics, it's the stabilization plan of 1959. So there is an industrial takeoff in the 60s, which owes a lot to technocrats and to the so-called long boom of the Western economy. And that tests the traditional Catholic nationalism of the Francoist regime, which had been there and much more coercively uh, present in the uh, 40s and the 50s. How um, um, overdetermined in the structural sense was the relatively peaceful, except, except of course in terms of Basque uh, terrorism, uh, was the Spanish transition from Francoism to democracy, or was it more of a case of uh, contingency? Well, I think contingency is definitely uh, plays a role. I mean, most obviously in the 1981 attempt to stage a coup. Um, I mean, fortunately, that was unsuccessful, though there is evidence that um, that it was a more broadly based policy that uh, King's confidant, General Armada, uh, possibly a member of the coup, wanted to head a, what he called a salvation uh, government. And so that is uh, an element one needs to think about. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, I think um, it was easier it was a much easier transition than in the case of portugal much easier portugal after the Caetino regime fell shortly beforehand had a much more tricky transition in 74 75 into 76 so i think from that and it's worth bearing in mind that elsewhere in europe uh, the late 70s and early 80s were not exactly easy years. You know, it's the period of the Red Brigade in Italy, the Bader Meinhof, etc., etc., etc. So there are all sorts of problems and issues to address as far as as far as that is concerned. But uh, yes, I think it can be overplayed. I mean, Juan Carlos is presented as a transitional figure, able to reconcile oil. Well, that does depend upon all being willing to be reconciled. And you yourself have drawn attention to the Basques, who, of course, blew up uh, Franco's um, designated successor, uh, Admiral Carrero Blanco, in Madrid in December uh, 1973, uh, you know, which was scarcely a, a sort of a peaceful transition of power sort of scenario. Do you agree with uh, Sir John Eliot in his book dealing with uh, Catalan nationalism that uh, the Catalan intelligentsia has uh, had a baneful influence by virtue of their uh, myth-making in terms of Catalan history? Well, I mean, you know, John Eliot's very committed to a Spanish viewpoint. Um, I think... What, what's interesting is this, um, and you know, here we are. We're you know we're in a world in which you have nationalisms that have emerged in the shadows of empire, and where they succeed, Irish or Finnish or Polish, uh, we held them up for exemplary activity, and where they fail, they're treated as pathologies, which of course has been the fate of the Catalans at the hands of. The Spanish state repeatedly. 
I think I'm, you know, I'm not so convinced as John is that there's this easy distinction between the goodies and the baddies. Now, that's an un- you might say that's an unfair caricaturing of his views, but I don't think it is, actually. I mean, he he has looked at the comparison between Catalonia and Scotland. And, you know, I mean, I myself would prefer Scotland to stay within the Union. But if Scotland wishes to be independent and a majority of Scots vote for it, then, you know, in, in a democratic society, one should be prepared to accept that. And I have to say, one contrasts, you know, the Cameron government was, as we all know, cack-handed and incompetent. But at least in 2014, the the, um, the the referendum in Scotland was something that was accepted by the by the Westminster Parliament. A, a structure was put in place for it. Nobody was arrested. Nobody was put into prison. The matter was addressed peacefully. And I don't think that the Spanish system has responded so well to Catalonia. Yes, of course, there's always myth-making in nationalism. And yes, of course, that's why people like myself who talk about relativism and contingency and complexity are deeply unpopular with many so-called public intellectuals who like clarity as long as it's their clarity and like progressivism as long as it's their progressivism. But I'm, I'm uneasy. I mean, I myself cannot see why um, if you have a European Union with states with a relatively modest population in them, um, such as Denmark or Finland, let alone places like Luxembourg or Mass, uh, you know, um, why on earth Catalonia, if it wishes to have independence, should not have independence? Like, you know, the fact that they might invent a history to that purpose and end, well, big deal. So have most societies invented histories. And as you know, I've written, in, I think, three books in all on people's accounts of the past history history wars, the extent to which, as it were, this making takes place. And you know, it's, it can be easy to make fun of it. I'm not trying to make fun of it. I think what it reflects is the the often desperate search for a sense of identity in a in a in a complex uh, in a complex world and searches for identity always involve fiction i mean you ask any person to provide an account of their life and you will know you are hearing something which reflects both fiction but also a desperate sense to provide meaning to what they see there so you know it's not surprising that uh, that a society a state a culture a people whatever term you wish to use uh, has the same characteristics if you wanted people to take one thing away from your book what would it be Oh, Spain is very well worth reading, but when you, sorry, Spain is very well worth visiting, but when you go to Spain, look, I mean, I'm fascinated by public history, look and see how the public history is displayed and discussed. Look and see what the squares are named after. Look and see what statuary is there. Look and see how the local history is depicted. All of that is fascinating because it is a really interesting but very complex and very multifaceted society, more so, for example, than Portugal, which, you know, which I like enormously. And um, what else would I like people to get from the book? Well, what I've tried to capture is what I try to capture in all my books, 
which is the interaction between what happened in the past and how at every period, past and present, and dare I say future, we will prov be providing accounts of the past and how the the interplay of those is really both fascinating and, as you correctly mentioned when you were talking about Catalonia, tremendously important. I would like to thank you very much, Professor Black, for being so kind to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you, Professor Black. Thank you very much. And best wishes. <laughs>